Forge family, today we begin to study the epistle from Paul to the Ephesians. As noted in the introduction, the house church network in Ephesus was 10 years old, and Paul wrote to those believers from Rome, where he was under house arrest, for his appeal to Caesar. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were written at the same time, and they were hand-delivered by Tychicus a thousand miles to the east. The Ephesian letter appears to be crafted as a circular letter because it doesn't have any, any personal greetings anywhere in the text. That would mean that this letter would be read around the house church network in Ephesus, then copied and passed on to other networks in Asia Minor and perhaps beyond. Now, just pause right there. I have a rhetorical question for you. What is doctrine? The answer to that is, it is an organized, tested system of beliefs upon which life or politics or your walk with the Lord or religion, uh, it's, it's all founded on that doctrine. It is an organized, tested system of beliefs upon which life, politics, and religion are founded. Okay, So, as noted in the first half of this letter, uh, we're going to deal with, uh, with doctrine. And the second half of the letter is going to deal with application. This epistle is perhaps the most penetrating, sweet, and pervasive. It just it penetrates us um, of any of Paul's letters. So let's pray. God, whom we call Father, just as Jesus did, we would draw near to learn. Draw near to to draw on the power to apply what we're taught in the scriptures and draw near to you as we walk together on earth and into heaven. Open our eyes to the depths before us and our hearts to reality of hearing your voice in these texts. Thank you for equipping us for life here and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family, we begin in Ephesians chapter 1. And as we look at the first 14 verses, we're going to be awash with praise with what God did for Paul, for the Ephesians, and for us. Verses 3 to 14 are a single sentence. Those of you who are grammarians, you like to diagram sentences, that, that, that's a job. Let me tell you, it is like a page and a half of, of uh, all these subclauses and phrases and things like that. Okay? And there are those who believe that this uh, this was should have been sung aloud. It, you know, they, they read it as if it's hymn, hymnology, okay? Now, the first two verses are Paul's greeting to the brothers and sisters. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Paul pointed out that he was made an apostle. It was not his desire, it was not the choice of men, but it was the will of God that made him an apostle. This persecutor of the church was stopped, dropped, and addressed by Jesus himself on the Damascus Road, and then introduced to a relationship with the risen Messiah, equipped over a period of perhaps three years, and finally set in place as a teacher in Antioch to await Holy Spirit's call to go to the Gentiles. 
Paul's third missionary journey put him in Ephesus for nearly three years, teaching and discipling. And now Paul greets the saints there. Paul's word for saints is hagios. It means holy ones, ones set apart to God who have been hallowed and made whole and holy. Paul deems the believers he's writing to with having been transformed from Gentile magic, idolatry, immorality, and fear to become holy ones, saints. The text that follows will deal with positional sanctification. That means being placed in a holy state and positioned by God himself. And then secondly, there's progressive sanctification, which means growing into more of the present tense salvation in the walk with God in Christ by Holy Spirit. So let's pause here, because in the side margin of my text, there's this little note that said that the um, oldest manuscripts of this epistle, of which five were unearthed, they were found by archaeologists, biblical Bible archaeologists, in the mid-1800s. Those five are, are deemed the, uh, the oldest manuscripts of Ephesians, and they do not have the greeting that says, at Ephesus. The oldest manuscript witness is what the that becomes the standard by which scholars uh, function. And here, that missing address to the Ephesians strengthens the belief that this was to be a circular letter. So back to the text. In verse 2, Paul uses the Greek word charis, translated as grace. It's a gift or a favor done to an undeserving individual with no expectation of repayment, finding its only motive in the bounty, free-handedness, love, and resources of the giver. This word was brought into the New Testament from the Greek koine, and it had to be modified slightly because it speaks of something that the Greeks couldn't even conceive of. <clears throat> but it's what God does. And it speaks of, of uh, it clearly captures the heart of God as he gave his only son for the redemption of mankind. There is a great breadth of grace teaching in that one word. The second word that in Paul's greeting is peace which in Greek speaks of a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. In Colossians 1, Paul wrote that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. That peace in Colossians speaks about the peace with God, binding the former sinner to God himself. Here, in this epistle, Paul is speaking of this peace as a sanctifying, present-tense salvation peace among the saints. And this grace and peace is set upon the saints by God and the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son. The sentence that begins in verse 3 and carries through to verse 14 is filled with celebration. Paul begins with a blessing. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So in Greek, there are two primary words for blessing. One deals with being happy and prosperous. And the second one 
is a word that speaks of speaking well of something or someone. It is the latter of those two that Paul chooses here, for eulogetos is used exclusively of God in the New Testament. It reflects his character and reputation, and so Paul blesses God back for who he is, both the Father and the Son, and then Paul uses the same blessing word for what God put upon us, the saints, of every spiritual blessing in the place where God reigns, in heavenly places. Those blessings from God are reflected back and reflected outward as we demonstrate his character and his reputation in heaven and on earth. Now, stop right there. This complete set of blessings is a now reality. It's not something stored up for eternity alone. It's phenomenal, inexhaustible grace and peace fit here in the list of blessings in heavenly places and on earth. So Paul has celebrated what God did in through him in spite of himself, making him an apostle of the risen Christ to the Gentiles. Secondly, Paul also celebrated the saints, that is us too, and sets us apart as ones unto God. And then in verse 3, Paul sets about to celebrate God with our thanks and praise for his blessings. In verse 4 and 5, we get plunged into prehistory, beyond history, because of our being chosen out before time began. Paul said, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So, before the creation of time, before a temporal world order, before God spoke out the foundations of the world, literally, before he threw down the foundations of the world, <clears throat> the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost chose us, chose you personally, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We would be set apart to him only. Now, see, there's that word again, hagios, without any, without any spot, without any deficiency, which is also a, a picture, if you will, of the, the lamb that is sacrificed in the Old Testament. It had to be perfect. The triune God chose us to be holy before them. Then, in their love, we were before ordained. We were predestined from eternity past to be adopted as sons and daughters. They willed it so. Now here, Paul draws on the rituals of the Greek and the Roman fathers, selecting a youth out of their household to be adopted as a son. That process was intense, for the outcome was that this youth, who had relationships, who had some resources, uh, discovered that the, all that was going to be stripped away. It was gone, and it was replaced with a whole new level of relationships and resources. Such was the adoption of each of us, taking away the orphan spirit and replacing it with the Holy Spirit that ushered us as sons and daughters into a whole new level of relationships and resources 
in Christ. Now this tiny qualifier, in Christ, appears 69 times in Paul's writings. Our adoption has been accomplished in Christ. That makes us joint heirs as sons of God. Verse 6 introduces the first reason the Father adopted us through Christ. Quote, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So it's here that doctrine becomes doxology. It is here we begin to sing out, cry out, breathe out his praise. And I'm sure it's familiar to you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's second grade. Estes Park, Colorado, sitting in a pew in a Presbyterian church. I learned it. (laughs) Verse 7 and 8 continues with the blessings. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, here again is the in him. We were chosen out before time began. We were adopted as sons and daughters, all to the praise of his great grace. Now realize, God did not change his mind when about uh, did not change his mind about choosing us out when we were born in sin and we acted out our own trespasses. He bought us back. He redeemed us, a releasing made possible by paying a ransom. We were held captive to sin and death. And it was by the blood of Jesus that the price of our redemption was paid. Not only were we chosen, then adopted, we were redeemed. We are thrice possessed by the Father through the blood of Christ to be his own. With the blood of Jesus came the forgiveness of our sins, the washing away of all spot and blemish for willful choices made apart from his holiness, as well as sin that was committed in ignorance. We are washed clean. It was all washed away. This astounding forgiveness is another great blessing that gives us access to heavenly places in Christ through his great grace. Verse 8 begins with the statement that it was those great grace riches that were poured out on us, lavished on us, from unending supply. We have been unendingly redeemed. We have been unendingly forgiven. Verse 8 continues, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in us. Now, Paul uses the Greek word sophia. It means wisdom. But to break it down further, it is the striving for the best ends while using the best means. A mental excellence, a collective moral intelligence, and when used of God, 
supreme intelligence. We've been lavished with this wisdom. The second word is phronesis. Uh, it's the word in English, prudence. Okay, that's probably about 1790, 1810, something like that. Prudence was a fairly common English name, actually, for, for girls. Okay, but prudence means uh, it leads us to the right and effective use of wisdom. Scholars say that the use of wisdom and prudence results in discernment of the deep things of God. This wisdom and understanding was superabundantly poured out on us in Christ. Verses 9 to 11 is an introduction to a mystery of God from ages past. It was hidden from the beginning, hinted at in the minor prophets, and in the fullness of time, the offered redemption of all mankind by the blood of Jesus became visible and known. This redemption was part of the eternal plan of God. That redemption was now no longer limited to the Jews, but was loosed to women, children, Gentiles, the savages, the unclean, and the lost, all from the heart of the love of the Father. This great pleasure God purposed in himself. Quote, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, that he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time, that in the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So here, the cosmic Christ of the letter to the Colossians here breaks out to be the Redeemer, the present risen Christ to the Ephesians. The best Greek, the Greek texts do not state that we received an inheritance, but rather we were made an inheritance for the Lord God. This takes place in a predestined fashion. In other words, quote, to mark out the boundaries or limits beforehand, unquote. Well, let's stop here for a bit. Um, we've been made a heritage, a wealthy inheritance to the Father, all accomplished beforehand, being worked out according to his will. Today in America, we are being faced with bitter rejection of Christ and the scriptures, not to speak of biblical values and righteous choices. That word predestined, Quote, to mark out the boundaries or limits beforehand, that brings us hope that Father God has likewise set boundaries and limits on darkness and egregious sin. For he will see his accomplished will for this nation. Back to verse 12. To the end, quote, to, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So who was it that first hoped in Christ? It was the Jews. They were, they were disciples of Jesus. And their converts to Christ on Pentecost and beyond. It was the Father's desire that the Jews heard first, responded first, turned to him first, 
And some did. Some rushed to Him as Savior and Lord. But the majority did not, and that is so to this day. The followers of Jesus, okay, next in in verse 13, it proclaims that the, the Gentiles who were to come to Christ by the will of the Father, quote, in Him, you also, that's us, okay, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. More of the mystery of God is broken open, made visible, revealed. God planned for the Gentiles to believe in Christ. And when they did so, they received the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit, which sealed them up unto God. Now, in the ancient world, all possessions were marked. You know, anything of any significance was marked with a seal. That bag over there, that property, that boat, that slave, that horse, that house, that business. And whoever owned them put their seal upon it. Here, the seal that the Father placed on the Gentiles came to believe in who came to believe in Christ was the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of my sons sat at dinner the other night and told a story about an encounter in a park in San Francisco with uh, himself and a large black man and his lady partner. That man had his mind blown. He was nearly frantic to find out how this white guy, my son, a total stranger, could have known those things about them. Those insights were part of the seal, the shine of the Holy Spirit on my son. It is Holy Spirit, quote, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So this pledge is the Greek word arabon, which speaks of a down payment, a promise of the final payment to come, the guarantee that a full redemption of the purchased purchased possession. Paul is pointing to our salvation. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. The Holy Spirit indwelling us is God's down payment, the earnest money that guarantees our outcome. Another image is the placing of an engagement ring on the hand of the bride-to-be, a statement of intent, a promise that a wedding is coming, that marriage will be forever. God's own possession is an image of his people of his own, sons and daughters in Christ. All of that is destined to release praise to the glory of God. So Forge family, we've been refreshed to our sanctification, our adoption, and our praise by this passage. We are to rest on our redemption and forgiveness and receive his wisdom and discernment. Radical transformation is ours to be had. The being in Christ in all things, experiences, and events. We are to begin afresh to experience the dynamic unity of Christ with us through and through us here on earth as we are and while we're seated in heavenly places we are surrounded by the arms of Jesus holding us as brothers and sisters 
sealed by Holy Spirit, and marked as the Lord's inheritance. His promises keep surfacing as we wait and hope. Let us live for the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Here today, Lord, we've been doused with doctrine. <laughs> but with what comes, but that, that comes with the truth of the presence of Holy Spirit to make plain the promises of God. Lord, we would be your sons and daughters set apart, adopted as joint heirs with Christ, who have one goal, to live in a manner that brings praise to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.